Welcome to the Blue Earth Podcast, brought to you by Future Frogmen, a nonprofit organization focused on creating awareness for our oceans. I'm John Sherbin, the show's producer, and our host, as always, is Dr. Colleen Bielitz. Today's guest is Brendan DeGrim, the dive safety officer for the Maritime Aquarium in Norwalk, Connecticut. He relocated from California, where he was a dive instructor and member of the volunteer scientific dive team at the Aquarium of the Pacific. Brendan's story is a prime example that there is no traditional path to joining this industry and to never let anyone tell you that it is not possible to follow your dreams. Let's get into it. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Blue Earth Podcast, which is a part of Future Frogmen, a nonprofit fostering future leaders to protect the ocean. I'm your host, Dr. Colleen Bielitz. And today on our show, we have Brendan DeGrim from the Maritime Aquarium in Norwalk, Connecticut. Welcome to the show, Brendan. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you here on our podcast. Uh, Usually on the show, what I like to do is I always like to talk a little bit about the history of my guests and find out a little bit about their love for the ocean. So I was curious if you wouldn't mind just telling us a little bit about your history with the ocean. Sure, absolutely. My love of the water came from a really, really early age. Um, I was really fortunate. uh, My dad worked super, super hard when I was a kid. So I was fortunate to grow up with a pool in my backyard. And I spent pretty much all of my summers in that pool. Um, All of that time gave me a great amount of comfort. um, And I would just spend so much time imagining I was on the ocean. I remember being on the little, uh, little inflatable rafts thinking that I was going on these ocean voyages and not recommended, do not do this at home. But as a middle schooler, I actually created my very first scuba tank out of a Gatorade bottle, some plastic tubing, and I put some slits in the side. Somehow I realized that you needed to displace the air with water and it was good enough for a breath. And that had me hooked and wanting to eventually become a diver. And then I was also on the other end of that really lucky to grow up uh, near my grandparents. Um, And my grandfather in particular lived near the Jersey Shore and would take me out there. And as a lot of people who know me at the aquarium and know my my underwater sing-alongs here, um, one of my favorite movies is Moana. And I would have that Moana moment where I'd look out at the ocean, just wonder, you know, how far does it go? What's in there? You know, all of that wonder um, and time in the water really kind of led me down the path to where I am today. And, you know, it's funny that you mentioned Moana because it truly is a magical moment when she looks out to the sea and wonders what's out there. And for any of our listeners that are not familiar with the the Jersey Shore, it's the New Jersey Atlantic Ocean coastline, which is roughly about 130 miles in length. And in contrast to the northern New Jersey shoreline, the southern New Jersey shoreline is composed of barrier islands of varying lengths from 18 miles, which is Long Beach Island, to about five miles, which is the Wildwoods. And I spent a lot of time as a kid, uh, every summer my grandparents would take us to Wildwood and I loved heading there as a child. And uh, it has a huge boardwalk that runs pretty much half the length. It's about two and a half miles and has over 70,000 wooden planks. And uh, so I'm there with you, Brendan, you know, looking out at the ocean, uh, it just, it does kind of evoke that sense of wonder. And I think it's an interesting that you kind of thought about diving, even being in middle school. So why don't we kind of fast forward and talk a little bit about what you do now uh, at, for, for future frogmen, you know, uh, we have a lot of divers and a lot of divers that listen to the show. So, you know, maybe you could talk about what you're doing now. Absolutely. So what I do right now um, is is absolutely my dream job. I'm what's called the dive safety officer here at the aquarium. So my job is basically to manage the entire dive program. Um, I need to make sure that all of our dives are executed safely while also compliant with um, our regulatory guidelines and other uh, industry standard guidelines. It's a very strange um, realm that aquarium diving falls in because it's partly between occupational diving, partly between scientific diving, to the point where there's even been a major lawsuit in this industry, which thankfully has swayed more out of the way of occupational diving towards scientific diving, because that allows us to do really what we need to do without the constraints that say full on, you know, we're not going down and dismantling bombs and welding. We're going down to observe wildlife and, you know, do very, very basic work. So there's a lot of 
there's a lot of red tape and things that we have to deal with. But, you know, at the end of the day, I get to be in the water, you know, I get I get paid to dive and I still can't wrap my head around it. Yeah. And can you tell us, you know, what does a dive safety officer do? You know, what are the basic requirements? So that's a great question. And that depends on where you are. The term dive safety officer is really under the realm of scientific diving. So you'll probably hear me mention scientific diving or the American Academy of Underwater Sciences, which is AUS. They're basically the governing body of scientific diving in the U.S., um, and then that counters with OSHA, um, who handles the, the commercial aspect of things. Um, but in order to become a DSO, the first step is mainly to become a dive instructor from a reputable agency, any internationally recognized agency. There's a lot of dive training agencies out there. You know, at the end of the day, it, so long as they're preaching good dive habits, you know, I don't care what the name on your card is. I just care that you are doing a good job and, you know, you're being a respectful diver. So becoming a dive instructor is first and foremost. Other things that help um, would be having a background in a marine sciences field, being in a scientific diving program in your um, in your studies. Um, but you know, if that's something you don't have, don't worry. I was a criminal justice major and I mastered in Homeland Security and I worked in finance for nine years. So there are other ways to get to this job if this is something that you're interested in. But generally, the traditional way would be become a dive instructor, go through a scientific diving program, and then just kind of work your way up um, till you eventually get you know that opportunity. Now, um, I had met you when I visited the Maritime Aquarium, uh, which is located in Norwalk, Connecticut. And I loved all the exhibits there. I mean, you have living exhibits, digital ones, seasonal ones. I especially love the Journey with the Jellies exhibit, which was just awesome. You know, just seeing the jellyfish that you have there and the different types. And you have everything from harbor seals and sharks and sea turtles. Maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit what it's like, you know, working at an aquarium. It is rarely a dull moment. So, you know, you're always going to have your, your moments where you're, you're answering emails and things like that. But then I go and I put a wetsuit on and, you know, for instance, later today, when we get off this call, I'm going to suit up and I'm going to go dive in our, our temporary seal holding pool um, that's holding our seals until our new exhibit, uh, which is actually going to be our largest exhibit, uh, opens in April or May, depending on what construction guidelines are following. And I get to do the glamorous job of vacuuming poop all in a, a day's work. Yesterday, I spent a, a couple hours um, scrubbing the walls of the, the shark tank of the, the algae that was on there. Um, we do all sorts of projects. We do light maintenance in the water. Um, we do animal work in the water. Um, one of the projects I was really excited about was before my arrival, there was a volunteer dive program, but there wasn't really a, a staff dive program, a husbandry dive program. So right now, I've, we've developed that program so that husbandry staff can observe the animals and do even more science. A couple of the exciting things that are happening right now, this time of year, our sharks exhibit um, mating behaviors. Um, and in that process, you know, it looks very intense um, and they, they will end up with some bite marks. It's totally normal. It's how these things happen. But we're working on trying to record those marks and record how the healing goes so that if a shark is pulled in the field and you can see some you know, healing on something, you can sort of estimate then how long ago that mating behavior happened. You know, we don't know a lot of what's happening right out here, just in our waters, right out here in the sound. Um, so the opportunity to do both diving in-house and we've also created a scientific diving program. We've been doing some field dives is really going to go uh, is going to go a long way to helping us better understand, you know, literally what's outside our door, what we can see outside our windows. I know you do a lot of work with, uh, you know, staff and volunteers. Uh, I know you interact with the public a lot. Can you tell us a little bit about that too? That is one of the most rewarding parts. I absolutely love interacting with the public. Um, usually the most uh, common question is where's the bathroom, but often you'll get into a, a situation where people ask, you know, real deep questions. Um, and, you know, again, I don't have a, a super scientific background. So we have an amazing intelligent staff here that I can defer to. And, and I learn new stuff every single day from them. But it's so cool to just walk through the gallery and see, you know, people's eyes light up, you know, kids and adults alike. 
you know, making those personal connections with animals that they may never actually see in the wild. I know diving isn't necessary for everybody. Being out on the water isn't necessary for everybody. But, you know, being in this situation allows them to make that personal connection. And that's really what I think is one of the most important things um, is the fact that these personal connections can be the driver for change, but can also be an inspiration. Um, I heard a story from a, a zoo a long time ago where um, this one woman visited the zoo when she was a little girl and then came back to talk to the, the head giraffe keeper to say that she spent her entire academic career studying giraffes because of that one moment she had in the zoo um, with the giraffe. So, you know, we're not going to hit everybody. Not everybody's going to have those moments, but those few and far between, like that's, that's everything. No, I agree. And those are the magical moments, right? Uh, we've had many guests on the show that talk about experiences that they had when they were young that then led to the you know, love and passion that they have for the ocean and for protecting it. So it doesn't surprise me. And I do love everything that uh, the Maritime Aquarium has, including, I know you have a, uh, for our listeners, an Untouchables exhibit, which is toxic animals that call the Long Island Sound home, which I thought was just like you were saying that people coming in may see things that they'd never see out in the wild. I thought that was like such a great exhibit for you to have. And, you know, I know that dive operations at the Maritime Aquarium um, needed some work when you came on board. So maybe you could kind of run us through like what happened when you were hired and, you know, how it was before you came and, you know, what it has become. Absolutely. I'm originally from uh, North Central Jersey, but I was living in Southern California at the time. And I was volunteering as a diver at the Aquarium of the Pacific, which is um, a fantastic facility. Um, it's got you know, their biggest exhibit is 350,000 gallons. And to, to give you a rough idea, our biggest exhibit right now is about 110, a big, big tank. I was on a very, very disciplined dive program. You had to, you know, hit very, very specific standards. Um, and that was my norm. And I had also previously volunteered at the New York Aquarium, which, you know, followed a, a very strict set of guidelines, attendance guidelines, all of those things. So when I came to the Maritime Aquarium, there existed a volunteer dive program. And I've got some of the greatest, most amazing, passionate volunteers you could ever ask for. Um, so I've been super lucky in that regard. The challenge was that they sort of operated in a silo. They weren't aware of the, the regulatory issues that faced aquarium diving. Um, and they also rolled up into, at that time, the director of volunteers, who was a non-diver. So in and of itself, all of these things were out of compliance for what we need to uphold Um from our accreditation standards, as well as other things. Um, so when I came in, I observed the program for a few months before I made any, any significant changes. And I just, there's a certain sense of complacency that comes with aquarium diving, and I've seen it everywhere. And that's one of my biggest pet peeves is, you know, people will say, oh, I'm in a glorified pool. What's the worst that can happen? And, you know, the worst that can happen is the worst that can happen. Complacency bothers me. But then just, you know, there were some, very specific, you know, in early on in diving, you learn diving is a buddy sport in the recreational world. There's certainly ways that you can learn to solo dive um, safely, but that involves a lot more training, a lot more equipment. You know, I saw people solo diving in exhibits. I saw people not necessarily following normal weighting guidelines. There's a misconception in aquarium diving that you always need to be overweighted. You can scrub a rock while neutrally buoyant. So it was really sort of changing the culture around how it was viewed. It was sort of more of a dive club than a professional dive operation. And again, through no fault of anybody's, it was just how, how it was run. And, you know, there wasn't a lot of oversight. So I came in from these other programs um, and started, you know, implementing rules to make us consistent with um, all the guidelines we followed auditing our safety equipment. You know, we didn't even have some basic safety equipment that we needed. So making sure that happened, we didn't have a safe entry into the shark tank. So I, I designed a new ladder system and had a, a local welder here in Norwalk build it for us. I held my divers accountable for their requirements. I did an audit of all their, their paperwork to make sure that they were um, compliant with everything that they needed to be on the team, like their, their first aid, their dive insurance, um, and a medical 
And in that process, um, we've definitely really ramped up our, our dive operations. Um, and then, as I stated before, putting in our, our husbandry dive program, where previously it was a job requirement to be dive certified, but we had people who have taken care of these sharks for 15 plus years who have never been in with them. So that was incredibly rewarding. The, the first time I got our, our senior aquarist, uh, Sandy, in with her sharks that she's been caring for, you know, just seeing the look on her eyes and just you, you could almost hear her giggling through her regulator. It was such a spectacular moment. But even that involved infrastructure. I had to work with a local clinic who was able to do all of our staff's dive physicals. Then I brought everybody to a, a local pool here in Norwalk. We've, I've really been trying to make my program a good local partner. Um, so we went to a local pool. And it was one of the most incredible nights getting all of our aquarists into a pool at the same time to do a basic dive checkout the entire time we were laughing. It was crazy. So that was a good time. And then once they get back, you know, establishing the program to get them checked out so that they can, you know, work in the tanks that they need to work at. So they have been able to do a lot more, uh, a lot easier now that diving is a part of their world. And I'm really, really excited. We have, um, a, uh, a research scientist here uh, who's got a lot of fantastic ideas and he and I work really close together. And Dave Hudson and I are really looking forward to doing more out in the field and opening it up and really seeing, you know, really seeing what we can do. There's so many projects out there. So, you know, I, as I had described it earlier to, to you, is kind of a ball of clay that I've been able to turn into the program that I want it to be um, and that everyone wants it to be, to be as safe and as successful as we possibly can. Yeah. And I, I agree with that. And I thought it was specific. Uh, one of the specific things you had mentioned was scientific diving. And now that you've made all of these changes, maybe you could talk about some of the goals for the future. Like where do you see the training programs going? Absolutely. Um, so I mentioned before the AUS and one of the things that I am doing is trying to get us recognized by the AUS as an organizational member, which is a, a lengthy process. Um, it's been extended a little bit. Obviously, there were challenges last year that we all faced, so that pushed our deadline back a little bit. Um, but we have part of the process was establishing our diving control board, um, which we've got, and you know, that was approved. We're now up for standards review. So I'm currently finishing writing our dive safety manual, which is clocking in at the moment at about 130 pages, um, which is an all-encompassing document of all of our dive rules and regulations and how we operate. Um, a document that will, once released, everybody will be held accountable to, will have the same set of rules, will have the same understanding. So there will no longer be this sort of confusion but as an AUS organizational member, it opens us up to a lot of things. It opens us up to uh, the ability to uh, attain even more grants um, that would be available to AUS members as opposed to non-members. Um, but it also will allow me to conduct the scientific diver training program, which is very, very robust training. It's at least a hundred hour course and several dives. But what's cool about that is not only Am I hoping to work with our, our staff and volunteers who are interested in that program to build our core group of field divers? But there are a lot of needs in the area. There are a lot of academic institutions around here that are not affiliated with that. And so there's this problem that's called orphan divers, where unless you are affiliated with an organizational member, you cannot have the benefits of diving under the AAUS. So if you are a student and you go from one school to another, you might have it at one, but then you can't necessarily continue your research the way you were doing because you don't have a dive program at the other. So I would love to be, you know, sort of a focal point where any local students who wish to pursue any sort of research in, you know, offshore underwater I would love to be a resource for them and the ability to allow them to continue doing what they need to do. I don't think science should be held up over, you know, technicality. So if I can be that for them, that would be fantastic. So that's a huge goal of mine. That's a bit down the road. Uh, you know, we have got a lot of other things coming up, but this is, you know, something that I think we could also 
another way we could be a, a part of our community. Yeah, no, I agree. And um, I thought you also did. Don't you have like a new seat, uh, a new seal pool coming up that would probably lead to some other opportunities as well? We do. So our new seal pool um, should hopefully open April or May, uh, assuming construction doesn't do what construction does and get delayed. (laughs) Um, But it's coming on beautifully. I've actually gotten a few tours of it most recently last week when we uh, was actually holding water for the first time. Um, So I am incredibly excited. It's our our biggest tank. It's about 150, 160,000 gallons. So for the past year, we've been working with the seals diving in their temporary enclosure. Um, to desensitize them to diving so that when we get in the new exhibit, diving is, you know, what they're used to and the new exhibit's going to be variable. I am going to absolutely need more volunteers. I'm going to need, um, you know, a lot more dives in that tank. So we are, we are constantly growing the team. My biggest challenge right now is with COVID guidelines, it's difficult to book pool time because it's, usually restricted to a person per lane and that isn't necessarily cost effective yet because we need to pay for the pool but you know we can't get as many volunteers through the door as we need so it's a a bit of a juggling act that we're working on um but i have an amazing set of recruits that i love the fact that they hound me so often as they do asking (laughs) do i know when the next pool date will be that nothing makes me happier than that. I will answer those emails all day long. So I'm excited about the potential growth we already have in the applicant pool that's there. And hopefully down the road, as people start seeing this pool, as they start seeing the divers in there, the divers with the sharks, you know, it would be great to get even more people involved in the program. Right now, there's really no limit. I have no cap. We, we only dive a few days a week. There's seven days a week. We can add more days. We can add more time. So there's there's tremendous growth potential for this program. Yeah. And I love that you mentioned, um, you know, the need for recruits. And this brings me to something that I wanted you to talk about. And uh, that's your path to becoming a dive safety officer. You have a story that I want our listeners to take to heart, especially since some listeners may have been uh, laid off, you know, recently due to the economy or another situation. And your experience is one that I've heard of before when people take the time to reflect on what it is that makes them the happiest. I mean, there's indeed life after layoff and some people who've been laid off find that they emerge better and happier and more fulfilled than before. And whether or not that happens, I think it depends on the mindset you adopt and the actions that you take. And you literally reflected on the kind of job that you really wanted and one that you felt would make you feel the most fulfilled. So maybe you could tell our listeners that story because I think it's such an important one to hear. Absolutely. So as I mentioned before, I definitely took an unconventional path uh, to, to reach where I am, you know, including my academic background. But it was back in 2013, I was working at Bank of America and the traditional walk in, you're told you're not needed anymore and you, you pack your box and go. And it was absolutely, you know, it, it was devastating. It was a dark time. I had, you know, worries is, you know, how am I going to pay the bills? You know, all of that stuff that everybody goes through in that situation. But I also was thinking, this is probably the longest amount of time I will have off, you know, as an adult without, you know, a a job that I need to go to where I'm not like burning vacation at a job. I was like, this is an opportunity. And in my head, I knew for a while that I really wanted to try to jump into the professional diving world. So I had my sight set at Dive Master, which is your entry level professional. And I had daydreamed about that for a while. And I kind of knew that I might be getting laid off soon because there wasn't a lot of work. So I was actually able to do a lot of dive studying while I was still at that job. But the opportunity happened. I got laid off. And I remember looking around at different programs. And the, the prior year I had gone to Costa Rica and I fell in love with the country and you know the people and just how nice everybody was and just welcoming. Um, I remember having a conversation at the time my brother, um, who's who's now married to my sister-in-law, but he was dating her at the time and she was living in San Francisco. My brother called and we were talking and I remember thinking like, I want to bring this up to him as an idea. I want to go to Costa Rica and I want to do a professional dive internship. But I thought, you know what, you know, this isn't the responsible thing to do. I need to put my head down. I need to get another job. And I remember talking to my brother, thinking that he was going to have, you know, the the same opinion, you know, maybe just work on getting another job and figuring out from there. And his response was, you know, how do we make this happen? 
that is one of the moments that I think back to is what really jump started my career because from that point on, um, you know, support from my family, he helped me out. My, my dad supported me, my friends supported me. And so I did it. I booked my, my trip. I had a one-way ticket down to Costa Rica. I stayed there for over three months. I went to a place, I lived in a town called Capos and I did all of my professional training with a dive shop called Oceans Unlimited who specialized in training professionals. They do also, you know, they do your regular, every other entry level cert and they do tours and things like that. But uh, my course director, uh, Georgia and my instructor, JT, were really, really focused on that professional level. And they gave me the absolute greatest foundation I could have ever asked for. You know, I went down there with the thought of, okay, I'm going to immerse myself in this world and see if this is what I want to do. And I did not want to leave at the end. I did my dive master down there. I did my instructor down there, several instructor specialties. And I came back to the States, you know, ready to teach and ahead of the game. And last, uh, well, not last year, 2019, um, at a, a dive trade show called FEMA, I actually got to see both Georgia and JT again for the first time since I was down there. And it was just such a wonderful experience sharing with them what their education you know, led to me uh, to become. It was you know, just being able to sit down and, and talk and you know, be like, yeah, I remember when you taught me this and now this is what I do for my divers. Like it was just such a special moment for me. It was, you know, getting laid off was a tremendously dark time, but being able to, to turn it into that opportunity. And then from there, I wasn't able to be a, a full-time dive instructor. I continued to work in finance, but when I was researching different jobs you can do as a professional diver, I kept coming back to what a DSO was and, you know, working with animals, working with people, working, you know, in an aquarium setting, like all of that I knew is what I wanted to do. So at that point, I decided to do my nine to five, put my head down, do what I needed to do. But I then, you know, came alive outside of that. And that was when I put all my effort into dive instructing as much as I could. In California, I was, you know, certifying over a hundred divers a year outside, you know, my nine to five, while also volunteering weekly at Aquarium of the Pacific, begin to get all that experience. And then eventually it paid off. But it was, you know, it all kind of goes back to having that, having that moment where I was like, okay, what, what do I do here? And then having the support from, you know, my, my family and my friends. And, you know, I, I still can't believe I've been lucky enough that that that's my story. Like it turned out so well from something that did not seem like it was going to go that well in the moment. Yeah. And I think that's because, you know, you followed your passion, you followed that path that your heart was telling you that this was for you, you know, the one that you kind of had that spark of, you know, fate when you were in middle school, like, this is what I love. And when you go after it, you know, that's what happens. Like you feel fulfilled. And uh, I love your story because as you said, even when you got back, you still worked in finance for a bit, but you knew that this was the goal and you didn't let anything stop you. You volunteered and did all of that to gain that experience to reach your goal. And now that you um, are training others and are the professional dive instructor, maybe you could tell our listeners about some of your favorite moments about being an instructor. Absolutely. So one of my all-time favorites, um, you know, I, I just mentioned my brother. He's uh, my brother, Frank. He's my, my only brother. He's about four and a half years older than me. So, you know, I grew up, you know, looking up to him. I grew up learning from him, you know, all that stuff. He was by far the best big brother you could ask for. And so it was really special for me when he was able to visit Costa Rica on the tail end of my trip. And he actually became my, the very first diver that I got credit for certifying. So I had brought him through the pool and all the, all the components of the course. And it was so much fun because it was also kind of interesting to see him outside of his comfort level. You know, I just assumed we're brothers. We got the exact same comfort level in the water. And I remember him, you know, exhibiting those telltale signs of anxiety that those first couple dives and it was awesome being able to be the one you know normally he was the one helping me out of those situations it was fun being the one to, to help him and those were just such fun dives you know he did his skills amazingly well his personality showed as a diver you know that that whole you know older brother younger brother you know i'll look at him and I'll be like yeah 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 i know I at one point he was vertical in the water 
He was trying to clear his mask and his regulator was dangling. And I look at him and I give him one of these, what are you doing, dude, looks. And he gives me the, the, yeah, I know, I know, I got it. I'll figure it out. And he clears his mask and he does the sweep and he gets his reg. And um, on his last dive, I remember um, specifically this one dive site where there was a white tip reef shark. And if we, you were lucky, this shark would usually hang out in this same hole each time. And I remember doing the briefing. I was like, all right, for your fourth and final certifying dive, I've got a you know really special treat. We are going to go down and we are going to find this shark. And he's like, so you know there's one place in the ocean where you're certain there's a shark and we're, we're going there. We're not avoiding it. I was like, yeah, yeah, we're going there. It's going to be great. And it was also funny seeing that, but he, he absolutely loved it. And it's been great. He's he, even on some vacations he's taken uh, with, uh, you know, with, with his family. He's actually used his diving skills, which makes me really, really happy. I know another one I, I had mentioned uh, from, from Costa Rica on that same trip was there's nothing you know, more exciting than when somebody sees that animal that they've always wanted to see in the water. Uh, you know, nothing, nothing beats that. And you know, sometimes people have fairly realistic expectations, like you know, being a Garibaldi in a kelp forest. You're probably going to see that in California. But this one particular person wanted to see an octopus. And I was I kind of prided myself in being able to find them. But it's not that hard to do if they're there. They're kind of slobs. They just leave a mess right below wherever they're holding. Find a pile of shells and you look up the reef, you'll eventually find it. So I remember it was early on when I was starting to guide some tours. And the, the guy said, I, I want to see an octopus. I said, all right. I can't, you know, it's the ocean. I can't guarantee anything. But if you're okay doing a nice slow dive, you know, paying attention to all the details, we will do our best. And I remember finding that octopus. But what I remember the most is the, the squeal of joy that came <laughs> out of this, this grown man's regulator. Um, and then he turned around and he hugged me, um, which was not the last time I've been hugged underwater, which is another fun thing. But yeah, he was so excited. And it was just so nice to be able to, to I didn't do anything. I just happened to be there, you know, and help him see this. You know, the ocean was what you know, gave him this experience, but it was nice mm-hmm. to share this experience with him. So there's so many, so many rewarding things that as you know, being in a dive instructor is just incredible. And now there's a, a particular creed, isn't there, for diving? Yeah, so I, it's kind of cheesy, but when, uh, you know, when I talk about the things that, you know, really mean the most to me being a dive instructor, um, you know, it's not you'll come across the, the salty instructor who's been doing it a while and just burned down, just, you know, people in, people out, you know, unfortunately that happens. But all of my students, you know, I, I try to take pride in, I try to really work with, I try to help them truly understand. Um, and there's, there's a few things, uh, you know, I, I am through the PADI system. So there's a bunch of other schools of training. I just happened to do my open water through PADI and then just stayed in the PADI system. And in the Patty Instructor Manual, um, there's the Patty Pros Creed, and it's super cheesy, but some of the points, um, like seeing fear change into courage, and timidity transformed into confidence, anticipation turned into passion, and just at the end, transforming another human and changing a life for the better, like things like that, it does sound really, really cheesy, but you do get to be a part of those moments with people. You get to see somebody from the start of the class who's petrified to the end of it who's planning their next dive trip, you know, being able to be a part of that transformation is just, you know, something that will never get old for me. I don't think it's cheesy at all. And one of my favorites is the open hearts and minds to the hidden beauty of nature's creation and our obligation to protect it as well. And I feel like your story of the octopus is just a, a grand example of the magical moments that people can have when they actually appreciate that beauty of nature. And we do have an obligation to protect it. And, you know, now that we've talked about your work at the aquarium and, um, you know, as, like I said, as future frogmen, we're, you know, we have a lot of uh, divers and a, a lot of our listeners are divers. Maybe you could tell, uh, tell some of us about some of your favorite dives that you've done in your lifetime. I always like to think about that. And if you could kind of paint a picture for our listeners. I would love to. I have been so lucky. There have been, you know, so many spectacular dives I've been a part of. 
and thinking about this, um, you know, there, there are a handful that really stick out. When I first got certified, I learned to dive in Florida um, in some of the freshwater springs. The, this particular one was Blue Springs, which was really, really cool because it was a place where the manatees would spend their winter. Um, it was a bit of a, a, a tough dive in the sense of you had to suit up in this parking lot walk down these stairs through sort of the forest you're in you know kind of your traditional florida forest and then you get in the river and then you have to swim upstream to get to where the bowl and where the spring is actually fed from but in that area we encountered a handful of manatees and you know again everything in the the ocean or in or in the water in general you don't touch you respect but sometimes things come up to you. I remember in particular, this mother manatee and her calf just came up to me. And I remember, you know, floating there as, as neutrally buoyant as best I could at the time, you know, as an open water diver, neutral buoyancy isn't necessarily all there. Um, but I was doing my best. And I just remember looking into their eyes, and just, you know, and then seeing the mother kind of go off and graze and just the calf was still there with me. And I, I just remember that being such a special moment. Um, and I've had moments like that, too, when I was um, in Costa Rica, where we were on the uh, migrating path for humpbacks. And in this one particular cove that we would dive in would be a place where they would kind of just hang out for the night, wake up in the morning and go. And I remember this, this again, mother and, and calf humpback, you know, the, the mother pushing the calf up, you know, to wake up and get some air and, you know, looking into a whale's eyes, you know, and again, it doesn't sound, it sounds like, you know, how people describe it in the movies and things, but it's, it's just unreal. Like all the life, you know, you can see them looking back at you, you know, it's, it's just unreal. And then California will always have a special place in my heart. I don't think anywhere will ever beat it for me. Um, even though it's cold and I, anyone who knows me will tell you, I'm a huge baby in the cold. I wear my seven mil in our 72 degree shark tank. Um, and I'm still shivering by the end of a dive, but as a, as a star Wars fan, I always like to equate it to being on Endor to like being through the forest on Endor. Like as you were just cruising through the kelp in Catalina, um, or wherever we did a lot of dives in Laguna it was just amazing. And you never know what, what fish you're going to see everything, you know, seals and sea lions will pop out of nowhere. You'll come across, especially out in Catalina. Thankfully the population is starting to bounce back. Um, the, the giant black sea bass, you know, they are massive and they just come out of nowhere and you just see them cruising through. Um, and even all the little stuff, all the beautiful nudibranchs and, um, one of my favorite animals are, uh, are sea hares, you know, big, big slimy looking slugs, but they look like bunnies, all the different wildlife. It was so diverse there. It was just, it was a very, very spectacular place to, to dive. And then on the, the contrast, as far as warm water goes, I was lucky enough when I was living in New York City, I worked for a dive shop called Panaqua at Midtown, and they were nice enough to send me on one of their dive trips um, to kind of learn how their dive travel worked so that maybe I could do more down the road. And I got to go to Grand Cayman. And I remember there was this one dive in particular where it was late night, the night before we were all kind of wrapping up our night. And one guy on the trip said, let's do a dawn dive. And, you know, I'm helping run the trip. So I was like, yeah, I'll wake up and I'll do a dawn dive with you fully expecting nobody to do this dawn dive um, or knowing what shape anyone was going to wake up in. And so, you know, I get up, I gear up, I walk out to the pier and I'm thinking, you know, I'm going to be, I'm just going to be this lone idiot standing here in my gear. And sure enough, that guy walks out at the same time and we go on this dive. And I remember, you know, getting over like, oh, I'm tired. The alarm went off early. But then having a moment with a spotted eagle ray that just cruised by. And then uh, toward the end of the dive, there was this hawksbill turtle that, we were, you know, always about 10 feet apart, but we were always sort of swimming together. It kept, you know, swimming around things and looking back and, you know, just kept doing its thing and acting naturally. But it was just fascinating to share, share that moment um, with that animal. And, you know, so many of the things that I look back on, on my favorite dives are just either, you know, beautiful scenery, sharing a moment with an animal or, so many of my dives have been instructional dives and training and just having, you know, 
great moments with students, breakthrough moments with students, or, you know, moments where a student was about to, you know, get nervous or have a problem, but then bringing them back in and then helping them enjoy that dive. So I've really been lucky to have a lot of different dive experiences. And it's just, you know, it's overwhelming how many incredible ones there have been. Yeah. I mean, they all sound incredible. And, you know, I can only imagine how magical it must have been uh, with, you know, the manatees and the whale, and like you said, and the turtle, like you're like almost at one with nature with all of them when you're in there. So now that you've mentioned all of the experiences that you've had, how do you think you've grown from these experiences? I always tell my divers that I don't care, you know, if they continue to to rack up certs, divers tend to like to collect certification cards. But what I always tell my divers is to keep an open mind and learn something new from every dive, to always be observing and never be that person on the boat who refuses help and says, oh, no, I know what I'm doing. Um, So for me, it's always about, you know, keeping an open mind, learning, even as an instructor, um, and even in my situation now as a DSO, I have, I'm part of a, a community of all other zoo and aquarium DSOs. I know I'm a rookie. I know I'm learning things, but I have this amazing resource where I could reach out to anybody and they will answer you. It's, um, it's called the ADPA, um, the Association of Dive Program Administrators. You know, you go to these top tier aquariums and you think, oh, they're not going to want to answer my random question about this policy or how we do this. But they, everybody takes time out of their day, will answer any question and help you. So that has helped me grow too, because I have, you know, kind of put my pride aside and know that, you know, I don't know everything. So I am going to reach out to the people who do. And so that's really helped me grow my program as well. So it's just, it's always this constant evolution, you know, never getting stagnant, you know, never getting back to, you know, back to complacent, never, never becoming complacent um, and just always keeping an open mind. You know, since we're talking about diving and some people listening may be thinking to themselves, you know, how do I become a diver? Like, what does a person have to do? And uh, maybe you could talk about that and tell us if you've ever had a scary experience when diving as well. Absolutely. So becoming a diver isn't as daunting as it sounds to, to most people who aren't, you know, near water. Um, the first thing you want to do is sort of research what dive shops are in your area. As I mentioned, uh, you know, I'm a PADI instructor. I've gone through the PADI system. There's other ones. There's NAWI, there's SSI, there's all sorts of ones. You know, again, I don't care what name's on your, your card so long as you're getting, you know, being taught safe and conservative dive practices, and then you follow those safe and conservative dive practices. But generally, at least in the PADI system, and generally across the board, your entry-level certification is called your open water certification. So from here on in, I'll just describe it in the PADI system. So it's a three-component course. There's knowledge development, there's confined water um, skills, and then there's open water skills. So knowledge development can be accomplished in, in multiple ways. You can either sit in a classroom and have me basically teach everything to you by word, or you could get the actual physical book and then a little bit of a hybrid with your instructor and that, or you could completely do it on your own time and there are e-learning options available. Once you've gotten through that step, then you have the opportunity to actually try scuba for the first time. So the knowledge development part is really important because even though diving is a super, super safe sport, there are things you need to know to stay safe. And there are things that you can do, or if you don't do, that could get you hurt very easily. But there are things that, you know, as simple as the number one rule in diving, it's never hold your breath, always continue breathing. So if you continue breathing, you'll never find yourself in that problem. But it's important to understand why holding your breath is a problem. So then you end up in the pool um, and the paddy system is broken up into five confined water dives. Some dive shops will run you through, you know, a six hour pool session and go through each dive, you know, all in one shot. Some will break it up. You know, when I taught in California, I, I would normally do the, the one day in the pool um, scenario. When I taught in New York, I would normally do the uh, a three night program, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night. So again, that depends on your dive shop and their scheduling. And then lastly, you have to complete four open water dives. So it can be anywhere from a lake to the ocean to um, in this region in the Northeast, a lot of people 
people like to go to a place called Dutch Springs in Pennsylvania. Um, it's a it's an old quarry that was turned into a dive sort of theme park. Um, I personally feel like it's a northeast rite of passage because a lot of people like to be done with it and you know say, oh yeah, I did it. I never have to do it again. There's a special place in my heart for it because I used to live in Scranton, Pennsylvania. I did a lot of my early dives there. So that place is responsible for a lot of my early training. But depending on wherever you go, you're going to do four dives where you demonstrate some of the skills you learned in the pool while also just going on a dive, learning how to do a proper dive plan, you know, learning to use those buddy procedures you use in the pool now out in the out in the wild, essentially. And then once you successfully complete those four dives, um, you earn your open water certification, um, which certifies you to a maximum depth of 60 feet. From there, you can, you know, the sky's the limit. You can do uh, advanced, you could do rescue, um, you could do specialties, you don't have to do anything else. It just depends on what type of diving you're looking for. If you want to take Caribbean trips and, you know, see reefs that are less than 30 feet for the rest of your life, fantastic. You don't need anything other than your, your open water. But if you want to continue up the ranks or if you want to become a professional, then there's additional training requirements that are needed. Um, but to just get that entry level um, in the PADI system, you can be as young as 10 years old to earn your junior open water certification. Something you're interested, it's a lot easier than you might think. I mean, that's interesting. I didn't know that you could, you know, start that young. Um, so that's I appreciate you sharing that information. Um and, you know, here at Future Frogmen, we're trying to create the next generation of ocean stewards. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how you as a dive instructor, how are you creating ocean stewards and the fundamentals that you that you instill in those that you instruct? I always try to make a point of reminding my students and just divers in general that we are part of an incredibly small population of the world that is lucky enough to see our world from the perspective that we get to see it. You know, the vast majority of people in the world are not divers and will never, you know, have that opportunity. Um, so first and foremost, we have to understand how lucky we are to be in this situation. And, you know, with, <laughs> with great power comes great responsibility. So with that, we need to be the voice. Um, we need to tell people about the things we've seen. You know, I've been, I've seen both beautiful and incredible things but I've also seen some really, really sad things and how humans have negatively impacted the ocean. You know, I've been in marine protected areas and then immediately dove outside that marine protected area. Uh, and you, it's very obvious um, what's protected, what isn't based on the wildlife, based on the trash, based on all that. You know, even things like fishing line. Sadly, when I was in Costa Rica, I saw a long line that I, we were doing this deep dive and I wanted to be able to go, but I had no, no more decompression time left. And at that point, I also realized that the, the turtle was no longer alive. The turtle had drowned because it got wrapped up in, um, in a fishing line. There are beautiful, amazing examples out there, but there's also that where we've been irresponsible as, as humans. So as divers, I feel it's really important that, you know, we share these experiences. We let people know what we can do, what, you know, what's going on, because look outside, you see the top of the water and not think about what's below it. So I always use the example with, with my students, as far as being a, a responsible diver, imagine sitting in your home and then all of a sudden your front door gets kicked down. Somebody just walks in, starts knocking your stuff over, pokes you a few times, takes a camera, puts it in your face, flashes it a few times knocks a couple more things over and then leaves. And you're just sitting there like, what just happened? But as ridiculous as that sounds, that's what a bad diver is. If a diver has bad buoyancy and they're kicking the corals and they're being disrespectful to the animals and you know all that, it's basically the same thing. So you know, I let them know that we have a big responsibility, but it's also their responsibility to dive responsibly going forward, to show that respect. Um, you know, I always have this terrible saying of take, take only pictures, leave only bubbles. I heard it a long time ago. It's it, that was, is also a cheesy one. Um, but that's what we should be doing. We should not have any sort of impact on the environment around us. We should be passively observing it because we're just lucky enough to be there. Yeah, Brendan, I, I hear you. And I, I actually like that saying, take only pictures, leave only bubbles. If that was 
all that we did, the ocean would be in much better shape. And, you know, I, I appreciate you sharing that with our listeners. Um, before we close, I, I want to just talk about two things. One, if you could just tell me the most rewarding thing about being a diver. And then I always like to close with a message of hope for the future. So maybe you could give us some insight into what you see about being the most rewarding thing and our message of hope for our listeners. Absolutely. Um, so as far as the most rewarding thing, I mean, I, I feel like I touched on so much in between personal growth, the, the ability to make you know, a positive impact on others, and the fact that I now get to use this sport to help the, the mission of our aquarium and our conservation efforts. I, I still, I can't believe that I get to do this. So it's an incredibly, incredibly rewarding experience. And as far as a message of hope goes, it's always a really, you know, we live in a really, really challenging time right now. And it's really, really easy to sort of get desensitized to what's going on. You know, we're flooded day and night with negative media. And so it's, it's normal to just tune everything out because you just can't pick and choose. You know, one thing's more awful than the next is more awful than the next. But in this case, you know, my message would be don't be discouraged. I have seen firsthand what the impact of people making a difference can be. And I've also seen the impact of people not caring. So don't get discouraged. Do the little things each day because they do add up. It does make a difference in the end. And just do everything you can to, to possibly protect this environment because it is tremendously beautiful. And you know, my only regret is that I wasn't born 50 years earlier so I could see, <laughs> go out with the, the Cousteaus and them and see what it was like back then. So keep doing the little things. It makes a difference, you know, given the chance the ocean can bounce back and you know, just, just keep believing. Yeah, well, thank you, Brendan, for that message of hope. And thank you for being on the Future Frogmen podcast. And everyone listening, please keep in mind that while we still have a lot to do, there is still hope for us as we work toward protecting our ocean. It's listeners like you, our ocean stewards and citizen scientists. You are the ones helping us make a difference by using your voice today. The time for action is now. So please take a few minutes to write your member of Congress in support of strong action on climate change. We need to hold our leaders accountable. If you would like to donate to future Frogmen, or if there's a topic you would like us to touch upon or a guest speaker you would like for us to have on the show, please feel free to contact us at info at futurefrogmen.org or visit our website. Thank you for joining us today and please spread the word as we work to improve ocean health by deepening the connection between people and nature. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Blue Earth Podcast. If you'd like to find more, you can find us at www.futurefrogmen.org or on all social media at Future Frogmen. We post episodes every week, so until next time, remember, anyone can be an ocean ambassador. Thanks. Thanks.